The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see people tonight. A full moon night. Some of you are new, and uh, once a month I just remind us all of this practice that we sort of take up as a a way of organizing this community, this organization. The Pali word is dana. Sometimes it gets translated as generosity, but it's really about this circle of giving and receiving, learning in life, all places in our lives, to receive freely what comes our way, and learning how, and it's a training, like how to give freely, how to respond wholeheartedly in life. So we do that at Common Ground. The leaders here from the very beginning in 1993, we never have charge for programs. And the idea as leaders, teachers, we practice giving everything away freely in a way that feels good for us and hopefully also for people who are at the receiving end. So that means as leaders, we practice giving freely. But as participants, we practice receiving the classes or whatever you get from being part of the the community as a free gift. And the way you know you're doing that right is it feels good. Like it's really seen experience as a free gift. No strings attached, no sort of tricky thing going on, but it's an offering. And then if ever you feel like responding and giving money or contributing your time, volunteering, or just sending out your good wishes to the community, that's also then our practice of giving freely, not because you took a class that you're giving, because that would be you'd mean that would mean you didn't receive it freely if you feel like you've got to give something back. So you're giving back because you want to give something back. It feels good to give something back. And of course the center, like any nonprofit profit organization, has the normal expense structure of a similar sized nonprofit. You know, we have office staff, we have a building we support the teacher's livelihood. So, But when you give, you can have that in mind, but you want to give in a way that feels makes you happy, not some other kind of feeling. So we just ask people to reflect on that and find a way that the coming and receiving of the class or program is a cause for happiness, and then any way you give is a cause for happiness too. And if, if you're not happy, then experiment. Give more, give less, give in a different way so that your relationship to calm ground is a cause for joy and happiness in your life. <coughs> not a cause for feeling guilty or comparing mind, judging like other people or judging ourselves. It's actually really hard in a way, but it protects the organization. And then... When we good, get good at it here in our relationship to Kamgram, we can take it on the road and start ha- seeing that in all of our relationships to our partners, to our job sites, to all the communities that we're part of. Even though you may get paid at work, how can I see my engagement with my paid job as free giving? I'm doing a good job because it feels good to do a good job not because I have to or I'll get fired, 
which may be true on some level, but that that's sort of a tight relationship. So how can we show up in those relationships in a way that's a cause for happiness? How can we receive our paycheck? You know, oh, how sweet. You know, it's like a, they're paying me. <laughs> Instead of, this is it. And there's no right or wrong way to do this. Some people put themselves on a schedule. You can go online and have an automatic deduction or you can contribute in the bowl, in the lobby. Really, any way. One thing to keep in mind when we have guest teachers or other people are teaching here, then the support for that teacher comes from the donations that are donated on that night or on that, that for that program. So... Uh, Teachers get 62% of the donations, and then the center gets 38% for its office staff and the building and the other expenses of the organization. And the difference is when I'm teaching, my support comes from the board. Once a year, they decide how much to support my livelihood as the executive director and, and guiding teacher here. But to all the other teachers, their support comes from that particular program. So there's more questions you can talk to Tim, who's here tonight as our program host somewhere. And also there's a sheet of paper out on the table where the donation bowl is that you can take a look at too. Or just come talk to me at the end of the program. So we're taking a little time now that it's September and we're we taking the time to review our practice. And one of the simple formulas for understanding our practice is the Buddha knowing Dhamma. This is uh, using traditional words from the Pali Canon, this collection of teachings. The Buddha isn't this person who lived 2,500 years ago. It's actually a word that represents or points to the awakened, awakened state of the mind. And if you reflect right now as I'm talking and notice that in no way do you need to make personal effort to be awake, like notice how the wakefulness of your mind is already there. And like, you can't shut it off. Can you stop the mind from being awake? I mean, we could work hard to absorb into some mental content, like some worry or some planning, and we might, if we worked hard at it, become forgetful that knowing is happening, that awareness is here. But the awareness would still be there. There just wouldn't be any reflective knowing that there's awareness happening, right? So this is what the word Buddha points to. In this tradition, it's considered a refuge in terms of understanding our practice, like how to be a skillful human being. We're training, we're practicing seeing this wakefulness as a protecting quality, a refuge. Not money, not physical health. As nice as it is to have money and to have physical health or a lot of friends or all these things that we normally consider of real value, more value than that is to have begun to recognize the protecting power of awareness. Without this reflective sense of awareness, we're kind of destined to follow habit 
trapped, literally imprisoned by the habit energies of our personality. It's only when we start to recognize awareness reflectively, like, oh yeah, this is being known. And this is, we're talking about an awareness not mediated by language. So, like in terms of recognizing now the wakeful quality of the mind, you see, whatever interpretation, whatever comment you give to your experience now, like, oh yeah, I'm at Common Ground, it's Sunday night, but the wakefulness, the knowing happened before that interpretation and whatever that interpretation is, that can also be known as a thought being known, right? And the other thing about the Buddha, the knowing, right, this wakefulness, is it's always whole, it's not fragmented. It's the thought about it, like, I like you, but I'm not so sure about you, or, you know, I don't like the sensations in this knee, but this knee feels okay. Those thoughts can fragment, divide up our experience. But before those thoughts, when we're just awake to the reality that it's like this now, or this is being known, that's not a fragmented experience. Do you sense, can you sense now the quality of wholeness or non-fragmentation of present moment awareness? So in a, in a very real sense, the present moment is this. It's not like this, 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 and this. Like if I divided it up, oh yeah, there's what I'm seeing and there's what I'm hearing and there's what I'm feeling in my body. I mean, we can fragment or we can divide up our experience or deconstruct it. But in any moment of being awake, aware, clearly aware, mindfully aware, that which, that which we're aware of isn't fragmented. It's just this. The present moment now is this. And I need to, my thinking mind to start dividing it up, don't I? I have to start saying the difference between visual experience and auditory experience or this visual experience and that visual experience or the things in my auditory, visual, cognitive experience that I like and the things in my visual, auditory and cognitive experience that I don't like. So I can divide it up, but awareness doesn't, that's the thinking process, that the conceptualizing process. But before that, just the simplicity of awareness being aware of this, it's a whole thing, a non-fragmented thing. So in terms of understanding our practice, we need to recognize this awareness as a refuge. And what does this awareness do? The Buddha, we say in the tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha knows Dharma or Dhamma. So Dharma is the word that means the way it is. And then that's the Sanskrit version of the word, and then the Pali version, a similar language, early uh, form of Sanskrit, is Dhamma. So sometimes you hear the word Dhamma, sometimes you hear it pronounced Dharma. But that word means the way it is. But not in terms of, oh yeah, I'm at common ground. That's a thought. Now the thought, just as a thought, that's Dhamma. But when I'm caught, identified with the content of the thought, then we call that like being lost in thought or being in a conceptual mode, 
right? Where my experience of this, my present moment experience, as I understand it, I understand it in terms of my verbal description, my like internal narration of what's going on. But that's not this experience. That's just a narrative, right? the thoughts. I'm at Common Ground, I'm giving a talk, I hope they like it. What should I say next? So Buddha knows Dhamma, this natural, inherent, and surprisingly, it's radically amazing, effortless quality of awareness. Like nobody's doing the awareness. We can pretend to do the awareness, but you don't have to make a personal effort to be awake, to be aware. It's just there. This awareness is capable of connecting with the way things are, Buddha knowing Dhamma. And so our practice is basically purifying this dynamic of Buddha knowing Dhamma, the wakefulness of the mind connecting being intimate with the way things are. And then all the beautiful qualities that we see in ourselves and in other human beings at times, and I I kind of relate to people who are saints, like being really forgiving and kind and skillful and fearless and happy and joyful, nimble, not fixed. All of those beautiful qualities... That's what flows out of Buddha knowing Dhamma. So one of the traditional ways that you would be identified or seen as a Buddhist practitioner is if you're somebody who reveres these three refuges. Wakefulness, knowing the way it is, and expressing, you could call it a natural skillfulness, a beautiful responsivity that comes out of the intimacy of Buddha knowing Dhamma. Wakeful, clear, mindful awareness, being intimate with the way it is, this body-mind experience right now. And you can see, like, if I was here in my cognitive mode trying to give a really good talk, you know, it might, you, some of you who are awake would notice how forced it felt or how Mark's trying really hard or something like that. But instead, in our activity, like me giving a talk, if there's an awareness that it's like this, that's in no way putting the brake on the activity of giving a talk. You know, it's like when you're doing something, like in my case, giving a talk, or in your case, sitting and listening to a talk or Tomorrow you're going to have to do Monday, whatever that looks like for you. You could go at it with the idea of a me who has to sit here and listen and understand what Mark is talking about, or a me who has to give the talk. Or you can be Buddha knowing Dhamma, right? expressing these beautiful qualities, being skillful. So that the listening and the understanding and the integrating of whatever you're hearing and the just being able to sit there, you let that be a natural activity that happens on its own. 
Now there's, you get a sense of freedom just even thinking about like, instead of me having to be the one who has to be at common ground on Sunday night and do the thing of listening and interpreting and understanding, we don't need that, do we? We can just, in a sense, relax into the natural wakefulness of the mind, knowing it's like this now. It's like this now. And the comprehension of what I'm saying, to whatever degree you comprehend what I'm saying, notice how that just happens on its own. Right? Like, we might think, I've I got to really get what he's saying. But in, the, does the comprehension actually depend on you trying to comprehend what I'm saying? Or even like, at 8.30 when this program's over, do you have to consciously, actively get yourself to stand up and walk out and go home? Or could that activity happen while the mind is in the mode of wakefulness, knowing it's like this now? And just letting the expression of your life flow out of that. That's the third refuge. We call it sangha. But it really means the beautiful qualities like beautifully walking out of the hall, interacting, and then whatever way you interact and getting to the car or bike or wherever, however you get home, like that could be experienced as the activity, the effortless activity of nature. And then you get a sense of the freedom the Buddha was pointing to. And you really see the fork in the road. I'm Mark. And I've got to live my life. I've got to run a small, you know, religious, Buddhist, whatever, organization. And I've got a partner, you know, a marriage I've got to, I've got all this other stuff. And I've got this body I've got to take care of. And I've got all these neurotic tendencies. And, and boy, it ain't easy being a human being, you know. And, uh, and it can feel really burdensome to be me. Or... I can train my mind, and this is, this is a radical abandonment, to abandon that normal sense of being the one doing my life and instead cultivate a new habit. This is being known. Buddha knowing Dhamma. This is being known. And a lot of people mistake, mistakenly think that Buddha knowing Dhamma, you know, wakefulness being intimate with the way it is, is the same as being passive. Well, you would just sit there. Nothing would ever happen. But try it. Is that actually what happens? Because just sitting there would mean that there's a, somebody who thinks that's the right thing to do or that doing something is wrong. But remember, we're not taking a stance. That's the whole point. Buddha knowing Dhamma, this wakeful quality of awareness, being intimate, is specifically, exactly, the not taking a stance. The refuge is in the Buddha knowing Dhamma, being awake, being this reflect, uh, reflectively aware that it's like this now, that this is being known, and letting the personality, letting the force of habit and desire and aversion express itself freely, Right? So it's a little messy, but the, the powerful thing about that mode is the learning is impeccable. 
Because Buddha's knowing Dhamma. So whatever we do, whatever we say, however this personality, this body-mind walks out of the hall at 8.30 or shows up at work tomorrow morning or has an interaction with the person you live with tonight, this Buddha-knowing Dhamma is going to be intimate with it. And so to, to whatever degree that engagement is unskillful, the cause for suffering, then there will be an intimacy with that. It will really get it. Oh, that doesn't work. That way of being, that intention, that motivation is, to, is not to be trusted. Or you, you interact in a really skillful way. And you there with your partner or the person you live with and you're understanding they're a human being. It's not easy for them to be a human being either. You know, I'm doing the best I can. They're doing the best they can. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how we can do this together. And, But you're not trying to do that. You just see that. You're just aware. Buddha knowing the way it is. Oh yeah, it's like this now. And you're noticing the harmony. You're noticing that things are working out better. So we have this fork in the road every moment really. And we can choose to be the one who has to do our life Or, and this is a training, it's not easy, but over time it gets easier and easier. We can be Buddha knowing Dhamma. Oh, this is being known. Now it's like this, and this is being known. It's just this experience, this emotion, these sensations, this experience being seen, this experience being heard. It's just this. It's just this. And part of what we see, like the first thing is we have to learn to see the moment not mediated by language, which is not the same as not having thought. It means not being confused or imprisoned, the mind not imprisoned by the thought, not contained by the thought. So the awareness is seen as outside or independent of thought. And in order for that to be the case, we have to be able to recognize thought is just thought. Otherwise, there's, in a sense, no space. It's like who we are is synonymous with the thought that's being thought. There's no space around that that recognizes that's just a thought in the mind. And sometimes thoughts have a charge, an emotional charge. Sometimes they're pretty light. They don't really have much emotional weight to them little wisps of mental energy coming and going. But in any case, we need uh, that space of wisdom that understands mental activity, thought, emotion, is just that. Sound is just sound. Sight is just sight. Sensation is just sensation. So we have to experience in this reflective way that it's like this now. This moment Practice now, this moment, not mediated, not dependent on any thoughts you have now in this moment. You see the distinction? Like, can you connect with this moment in a way that's independent of any thoughts that might be in the mind? You see, it's, it has a f- different flavor. It has this flavor of not being formed or bounded See, thoughts, concepts, ideas create a sense of boundness. Like when I say mat, you know, 
that perception, this experience, even though we're not talking together, but, you know, whatever this interaction is, as soon as I say to myself, that's Matt sitting there, then it becomes sort of frozen. Like the concept, or I'm the guiding teacher at Kamgar Meditation Center, you know, that sort of bounds this experience. Or America is the best country on the face of this earth. If there's any kind of concept, or even the concept, I don't know what's going on, also has a limiting quality to it. So when we connect this first part of practice, just learning to connect, the first experience of Buddha knowing Dhamma is recognizing that there is, in a way, you could call it a different reality. You know, the reality, the present moment, not mediated by language, is different than our normal mode of getting through the day, which is almost always mediated by the language, by the thoughts and ideas we have. So that's why, you know, there's such a emphasis in Buddhist practice to go someplace quiet, like Kamigo Meditation Center or corner in your apartment that's uncluttered, where your cat knows to leave you alone and your dog knows and your cell phone is off you're not even getting the little beeps that you're getting text messages and your people you live with know to leave you alone. So you, you have a simple environment because we need to respect that this is a radical training. We're so lost in thought, our experience is so governed by concept and idea that we need a lot of humility that we don't actually know this other reality very well or not at all. And when we start to wake up to this moment, any moment not mediated by language, already there's a lot of freedom just in that. Any moment. Walking in the woods, you know, and for a moment you realize the gap between when one thought ends but before the next thought begins. And the flavor of that space is things are open and unbounded and there's no problem. You know, problems, to have a sense of being weighed down, you need a thought about who you are and what's bothering you or whatever problem. As soon as that thought isn't there, like try to have a problem, try to feel burdened by life without your mind being governed by thought. You can't do it. Even something so simple and straightforward, like I have often a, a pain in my this knee here, my left knee, <clears throat> my left hip. And um, but when I practice Buddha knowing Dhamma, you know, just being awake to the sensations. But to do that now, I've been practicing for a while. So to do that in a way where my mind's not the experience isn't colored or imprisoned by any thought, like, why does this happen to me? Or what can I do to fix this? Or should I move? Or, But I'm just intimate. Buddha knowing Dhamma. It's a completely different experience than if I'm thinking, this is my knee pain, my hip pain. Will I be able to make it to 8.30? You know? Well, people think I'm a bad meditator if I keep squirming or adjusting. 
or whatever we might, you know, all those kind of imprisoning, burdensome thoughts. Because those thoughts literally create a reality. We then become the person who's burdened by the knee pain, the person who doesn't want the knee pain, the person who feels betrayed by their aging body, or the person that, you know, resents moving the bed in the winter almost two years ago and the knee still hasn't healed, you know, walking through snow carrying a really heavy sleep number bed. <laughs> it was one of those ones that actually, not a sleep number bed, that sort of can, you can sit up and read, you know, the whole mattress bends and, you know, so the sort of victim, all of the stuff that goes with it. And then that becomes our reality and it weighs as much as that reality would weigh. But as soon as there's just the knowing mind being intimate with the sensations as they are, those sensations may not be pleasant, but there's no idea, there's no concept that that's my pain or that pain is happening to me or that pain shouldn't be happening, right? There's freedom from that. It's just sensations being known, throbbing, burning, aching, whatever being known. But that's a different reality than being in the bubble. I'm the one with a bad knee. I've got 25 more minutes that I have to kneel here. I used to sit cross-legged. It looks so much cooler to sit with the half lotus. Now I have to kneel on a bench. What kind of example is that? Someday I'll be in a chair. That will even be worse. Right? And these thoughts, these kind of thoughts can be really heavy in the mind if we let them, if we believe them. So in terms of remembering our practice, when you sit down, the first thing you want to do is just reflect on Buddha for a few moments. Could be even a couple minutes. Right? So you're reflecting on the naturalness, the inherentness and effortlessness of the knowing mind. It's like already there, and you don't have to do it. Do you have to hear? Do you have to try to see or be sensitive to the body? The sensitivity is already doing its thing. So then that, when you just take a couple moments at the beginning of the set to reflect on the naturalness of awareness, and then to the degree you get it, then you get how relevant it is to relax. So if you don't do that at the beginning of the sit, you're going to start with wrong effort. You're going to start with this idea that there's a me who has to do something in order to get something. But, and that, you know what that leads to? Tension and stress and suffering, right? We kind of put ourselves as being atlas with this big burden of I've got to Wake up. I've got to become enlightened. I've got to become a good Buddhist practitioner. Whatever you know, your concept is. But you're imprisoned in that drama. And it has real psychic weight. So we start by noticing that awareness is inherent. It's natural. And it's effortless. And that reminds us about right effort. Honey, it's okay to relax. It's okay to relax because whatever I'm doing in my meditation... It's natural. It's nature. 
So I can relax into the knowing that's already happening. And what is knowing doing? It's already knowing the way it is. So instead of thinking, I've got to pay attention to the way it is, then we wonder, what is the way that it is? But that's thought. You see, it's, it's really crazy how we do that. Because right now, what is the awareness of your mind aware of? It's already aware of the way it is. You, there doesn't need to be a somebody being aware of the way it is. The sensitivity of the mind, the knowing mind, is already knowing this. You see? You see why it's so important to understand right effort. So right effort, effort is remembering it's okay to relax because awareness is already knowing the way it is. And the only way to ruin it is to make wrong effort. You get that? It's really important to understand this about meditation because from my own experience and from almost everybody else's direct experience, we don't get this point. And then we spent, I'm not kidding, decades practicing meditation, but really mostly training the mind to be tight, trying to get concentrated, trying to get peaceful, trying to understand what the Buddha, what the heck the Buddha was talking about. And it's frustrating because we're approaching the practice as if it's an intellectual problem to figure out. I've got to pay attention to the breath. You know, and we're expecting something to figure something out. As opposed to we're, we're trying to realize something about the mind. We're trying to realize the mind is essentially free already. So you see how ridiculous it is to create tension to realize that the mind is already essentially free. To get tight. To create the sense of a me who's got to do something which is already suffering, as if that's going to lead to noticing what's already true. So first take a few moments and in your own direct experience, just notice as best you can the experience of being aware. It's interesting how awareness can be reflective of the awareness itself. Now you can't see awareness because but you know awareness is happening because why? How do you know awareness is there? Things are being known. Right? So we know there's awareness, a knowing, a wakefulness, because of this whole world that in Buddhism we call Dharma or Dhamma, the way it is. So we relax into Buddha knowing Dhamma. Right? And that's that at least in moments, this not imprisoned by language. There may be thoughts, but the thoughts now are more on the periphery. They're coming and going, but the mind's not getting caught or identified with the thoughts that are coming and going. So don't get obsessed with getting rid of all the thoughts because that would be, I know it's silly to say this, but that would be the thought, I shouldn't be having thoughts, right? So it's just falling right back into the same thing. Just don't be worried about the thoughts. Don't be confused by the thoughts. They're just thoughts. Have the thought now, I'm at common ground. Think it a couple times. 
And as you're thinking it, what is actually that thought? I may come ground. If you don't grasp it, the thought I'm at Kamgard is virtually nothing. It's just this little sort of cognitive flitting, you know, mental energy. It's sort of there, like a, a display in the sky of the mind, you know, like if as if there was like fireworks, I'm at Kamgard. And then it quickly fades. Even before it's like fully projected, it's already fading, right? So thoughts aren't really much of anything. What makes them seem substantial is erroneously thinking that that's me or about me or belongs to me. Or So it's the grasping, it's the wrong attitude about thoughts that make that cause the sense of being imprisoned or caught. Thoughts themselves are just mental energy, just like sensations are sensations and sounds are sounds, sights are sights, smells and tastes are just that. They're just things that come and go. So the first stage is to get that simplicity, that new reality of things in and of themselves, not in terms of our concepts or our our ideas of things. And then the next trick, the next development in practice is to be able to sustain that present moment awareness not mediated by language. Because that's what allows for real learning, real insight. It's not just a moment of mindful awareness, Buddha knowing Dhamma, but sustaining it moment by moment by moment. Even a few moments of sustaining that present moment awareness of Buddha knowing Dhamma is quite transforming. And the Buddha talks about this in two ways. One is that we begin to understand what's skillful and not skillful. Because when you're sustaining your awareness and then the mind starts to get caught in a thought like, I'm a bad practitioner. I'm not trying hard enough. I don't trust the stuff about relaxing. I need to do it. You know. So let's say that activity starts in the mind. You get identified with the thought, I need to try harder. This is too loosey-goosey. But then, because you're not controlling anything, you're just Buddha knowing Dhamma, you see this. And you start noticing how everything's getting tight. When you start thinking, I don't trust this loosey-goosey stuff. I'm going to focus on my breath. I'm going to be present. I'm not going to let thoughts come in. So you basically create the reality of a war, me against distraction. You know, this, this idea of a me who has these enemies called thinking. <laughs> and then you see how that works. Well, that's really tight. But that's a really important insight. That's the learning I'm talking about. Because now the mind has seen, oh, that wasn't helpful. That must be what the Buddha calls unskillful. And over time, you start correlating it. You see that whenever there's greediness, whenever there's fear or aversion, Whenever there's denial or distraction, things get tight. It's just like the ancient law. And whenever there's non-aversion or kindness or non-greed, acceptance, renunciation, generosity, and non-delusion, seeing things as they are, things get open and free. So that 
development of understanding of what's skillful, what leads to release, and what's unskillful, what leads to stress and suffering, is born because of the continuity of Buddha knowing Dhamma. When we're in that simple mode of wakeful mind, clear mind, being intimate with things coming and going as they are, not in terms of our concepts, then we really see how it is that stress or suffering gets born. How it is that freedom from stress and suffering gets born. And the more we have those experiences, the more we have even a deeper experience of just letting things be. So that the sense of being a somebody who has to practice even can fall away at times. And the freedom is sustained without a sense of somebody sustaining the freedom. Until the freedom itself, the joy itself, triggers attachment. Like, ah, I don't want this to end. And then we lose it. Because now there's a somebody, there's a thought of a me who has something that he doesn't want to lose. And that, being imprisoned in that thought, is not the same as everything happening on its own. The essential freedom of the mind. And I'll just end with this acronym that you can use to help you remember this. It's RAIN, R-A-I-N. So that first stage of recognizing that first moment of intimacy, that's the R. So you can use this to start over. You got lost in thought, fantasizing about something, and then you remember, oh yeah, I'm in the middle of my set. What am I doing? Oh yeah, simply recognize the way it is. Buddha knowing Dhamma. So that's the R. Recognize. Oh, this is being known. You don't need a different this. This is the most important thing about starting over when you've been distracted. Whatever this is, whatever it feels like in the mind and body, that's what it's supposed to feel like. Don't think, no, no, I've got to get back somewhere. You don't have to get any back anywhere. You just have to connect with the present moment. Where is the present moment? Fortunately, it's already here. So, oh yeah, this. Just recognize it's like this. This is being known. That's the R. The A and the I is accept and interest or intimacy. So the acceptance is like what I was saying. That helps for the sustaining or the continuity, which is so important. Because whatever then, once I realize, oh, it's like this now. This is how it is. This is being known. Then the accepting is like, and then as it continues to unfold, it's like, yeah, just allow it to be the way it is. And how do I do that? I stay interested, intimate. Instead of having an idea, I trust the unfolding of nature, these causes and conditions that make up this experience in the moment. However it is, I'm willing to be interested. I'm willing to be intimate. And then that sets up the end, which is non-attachment. You can't actually do non-attachment. You realize it. So when you recognize it's just this being known, it's just this, and you're accepting, and you're sustaining an interest and an intimacy, then you will eventually realize how it's all happening on its own. That this, Even this, right now, 
This is the activity of nature. It's the activity of nature, and one aspect of that nature is this neurotic thought, it's happening to me, or this is my life, or I don't know what's going on. But that's also, that selfing, that sense of taking it personally, that's also just something being known, isn't it? No matter how tight it appears to be, like when we're really neurotic, really defensive or upset, all it takes is a recognition that no matter how tight it is, it's just that feeling being known. It's just this being known. It's never more complicated than that. Even on our deathbed, even when something great is happening to us, it's just this being known. And that's that fork in the road. We can either get lost in the thought about the implications of this is happening to me, or we can keep it radically simple. This is being known. And with acceptance and interest, we sustain that and we realize the freedom, the freedom of non-attachment. That's the N in RAIN. So R-A-I-N. Recognize, accept, interest, intimacy, and non-attachment, non-identification. That's the freedom part. So we have about 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear a few questions or comments from your own practice that you have, what you've been learning, what was not clear in what I said. What comes to mind? And Alan has the microphone. He'll pass it to you. If, you, if you'd like to share. It's always nice to hear people's names, too. Anything come to mind? Hello, my name is Lee. Um, I'm a relatively new member, and each night when I've heard you say, Maybe a little closer, Louis. Uh, when I've heard you uh, say to us, um, take a few moments to let go of the words, I puzzled over that and didn't come to a very good sense of what um, that meant for me. And tonight, I think I've gotten a clue about letting go of the language, the concepts that you're expressing and so forth and hopefully getting back to that um, I shouldn't say getting back I'm not sure I get there at the beginning of the set but to um, um, just acknowledge this this is this and not yeah. uh, some kind of a expectation I have myself or what I'm hoping you'll say and so forth yeah thanks Chloe yeah that's a, just a good reminder. And it seems paradoxical because, you know, we spent the evening, most of the evening with me talking. And, uh, but wholesome thoughts are thoughts that aim the mind, point the mind toward this experience of Buddha knowing Dhamma. So any thinking that does that, you could call wholesome thinking. But any thinking that leads to more thinking is unwholesome thinking. And when you hear or when you read a good Dharma book, some of that information illuminates the actual nature of your mind. 
And so it's already had its effect. So you don't need to remember the concepts because it's actually affected the understanding of the mind as you were hearing it or reading it, comprehending it. It changes one's understanding in the mind. So then how the mind sees, perceives, understands is already shifted. So we don't need to try to remember because it's already been incorporated. And that's sort of the definition of insight. It's uh, the mind, the view or the understanding of the mind is already shifted. So we put it down. And the interesting thing is those thoughts then come back up, but they come back up because they've already been integrated. You know, they're part of how the mind is understanding. Yeah, thanks, Louis. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Matt. Why don't I just pass the mic over here to Matt? Right here, Pierre. So, uh, good talk tonight. You know, I've, I've always um, thought of the practices being in line with, you know, our thoughts kind of create our reality. And if we can learn to be present, um, I think eventually we develop skill that can transfer throughout the day of being able to go into exposure of whatever the feeling tone is there and not get captured up by the thoughts, which I think throw me into the past or push me into the future. You know, and emotions get strong as if the thoughts are like a fertilizer for an emotional experience that can be greedy or aversive. I think for me, the hard part is, is that there's this whole experiential process behind me, you know, my shadow that goes all the way back to the beginning of my ability to think um, that continues to be there the same way as I drive a car. I don't have like, okay, I need to put the key in the ignition of the car and you know I don't have any thoughts there they're automatic and I don't really understand the process of how to not have like previous kind of processes that don't have anything to do or I guess they do I mean they're based on previous experiences but how do I be present and not continuously have the vulnerability of all this accumulated uh, ways of connecting the dots or correlating my experience, you know, yeah. and you have an opening awareness. I find that I'm always vulnerable to um, having certain ways of being kind of in a very subtle way come in and capture it and bring me back in to the way I know myself as a self within the world. Yeah. And kind of what you're saying, it's a good question, Matt. And, and what you're saying really has to do with, you know, because we're all traumatized in different ways through culture, you know, being oppressed in different ways or from our family. or, But it's just we have these emotional scars and we haven't processed all the pain from our life. And then like you described it, it always shows up because where is that all that unfinished business? It has to be here because there's no other place but here. There's no past and there's no future. There's only this. Do you get that? So anything that's unfinished, any res uh, re residue from the past, trauma from the past, habit energy from the past, it has to be here, somewhere in this dynamic we call the mind and body. It's here. And so it's showing up, as Matt said. Now the thing is, we're not going to be perfect. 
like how this mind-body understands or relates, it's going to be affected by everything from the past because it's the past is literally showing up as this. If you want to know, in Buddhism we say, if you want to know the past, take a look at what's showing up right now because this is the cumulative result of everything before. Right? Like my attitude, the qualities of my mind and body, this is the perfect expression of everything past is now cumulatively arriving right now as this. And so the, the key is to not need this to be different than it is, but to understand what this is and what it isn't. It's just this. We don't need a story telling myself, I've got all this unfinished business. Because whatever that is, I mean, on some level it may be true, but it's just this. And the key is, and you suggested this in how you described uh, your experience, not to stay at the level of thought, you know, the thoughts that are swirling, or even the different emotions, but to go right to the feeling tone. Oh, whatever this is, it hurts. Because it's the not willing, the not being willing to feel the unpleasantness that keeps us going back to the thoughts. So then we're in the idea that I'm somebody who has all this unfinished business, and I've got to, and then, and then we create that reality. But the it really what's going on in this moment is there's an unpleasant feeling. And out of habit, the mind thinks it's dangerous to be intimate with it. But we can recognize, oh, there's just that unpleasant feeling. Maybe very subtle. Oh, that little anxious, uneasy feeling is like this. It's just anxiety being known. Well, can that be okay? Is it actually safe to open to that? And you see, when we actually are intimate with that, then the thoughts aren't important. Because the thoughts were just uh, a way to avoid feeling what we feel. Trying to explain why we feel, try to blame somebody for what we feel or whatever. But if we can actually, if we're willing to be intimate with the pleasantness or the unpleasantness or whatever the feeling tone is, if we're willing to go through life being intimate, oh, it feels like this now. So when I say it's like this now, remember that this the most relevant part of this is how it actually feels. The pleasantness or unpleasant or pleasantness or neutrality. So as we end now, because it's 8.30, just notice how it is now, how it feels. Can you be intimate with the feeling right now? Not needing it to be different than it is. Even if it's ambiguous, can that be okay that it feels like this? Can that be enough or do you need more? Can it be enough that it's just this feeling being known? Well, that's not enough, right? But no, maybe it is enough just to be intimate. So it's not that the feeling is perfect, but the way the heart or mind relates to that feeling could be beautiful. Unconditional acceptance. Radical interest, intimacy. Not attachment, just letting nature be nature, letting the feeling be the feeling. 
There's so much freedom in there. And it does, you don't need any special equipment. You don't need a different moment than the moment you're having. That's what makes this practice so liberating. It's like we don't have to go to some cave or have a life where we have more time to practice. We just need to practice with the moments that are showing up. So much of our avoidance of the practice is thinking we need a different moment to do our practice. I can't do it now. Things are busy. So let's just take a moment. Let go of the words. Remembering we practice for the benefit of all beings, grateful for the women and men who've practiced before us, so many generations of people who had busy lives, complicated lives, but they did their practice, developed real wisdom and compassion, and one way or another passed on these teachings. And now, like it or not, it's our turn in our busy lives to develop this simple, wise presence and to become part of the causes and conditions for real peace and freedom from suffering in our world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.